The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston in the sanctuary of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with us every Sunday in person or on live stream. For details, go to FAPC.org. And now, here's Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston. This morning, we continue our fall sermon series, Detectives of Divinity. From September until Thanksgiving, Fifth Avenue Church is contemplating the role that wonder plays in the life of faith. We're reflecting on stories in scripture in which people's eyes grow wide and breath whistles through their teeth. Their hearts quicken moments when folk recognize that they are standing in the presence of God. And we're looking for parallels in our own lives. All we've said over and over this fall, awe is a doorway to the divine. And we've observed that these doorways come in a variety of shapes and sizes. Last week, Natalie Owens-Pike helped us consider the ways in which the natural world, and in particular, an octopus that she witnessed gliding through an underwater cathedral, can open to us doors of wonder. Today, our feet turn down a rocky path. We are headed toward a destination that no one has at the top of their bucket list, the realm of human suffering. Now this is, I will admit, a counterintuitive destination for a community seeking awe and wonder. And yet our faith insists that we make a visit. Why? Well, simply put, there are truths to be found in the midst of suffering, hard-won truths to be sure. Among these hard truths is a spiritual insight that goes like this. Many of us feel closer to God, more aware of God in times of duress than we do when everything is hunky-dory. In other words, seasons of suffering can be fertile ground for wonder. To help us explore the shadowed landscape in which suffering and wonder dance together, we are accompanied this morning by a passage in which the Apostle Paul speaks about human affliction and the consolation of God. Listen now for God's word to you as it echoes to us from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with the third verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all compassion who consoles us in all our affliction so that we may be able to console those who are in any affliction with the consolation with which we ourselves are consoled by God. 
For just as the sufferings of Christ are abundant for us, so also our consolation is abundant through Christ. If we are being afflicted, it's for your consolation and salvation. If we're being consoled, it's for your consolation, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we also are suffering. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our consolation. We do not want you to be aware, unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly, unbearably crushed that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death so that we would rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. He who rescued us from so deadly a peril will continue to rescue us. On him we have set our hope that he will rescue us again as you also join in helping us by your prayers so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. There's a whole lot of suffering going on. The last few weeks have exposed the world to human suffering in stark and bloody terms. The terrorist attacks and now war in Israel and Gaza have generated an endless supply of twisted faces howling in grief. You've seen the pictures. If you're like me, you glanced at them and turned away. You tried to carry on with life's necessary tasks, buying groceries, making a sandwich, doing the dishes while these pain-filled images floated through your head, stirring up grief, anger, despair. The world has a tremendous capacity to stomp on human hearts, to rough up hopes, to make our souls ache. It's an excruciating thing to witness the horrors that people are capable of afflicting on each other. There's a whole lot of suffering going on. This is true today, and it was true when today's passage from the good book was written oh, almost 2,000 years ago. Writing to members of his far-flung family, Paul states, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly, unbearably crushed that we despaired of life itself. Occasionally, I hear critics of religion argue that the Christian faith is too 
happy clappy, too doggone naive to be embraced by anyone who is actually paying attention in this hard, hard world. If I'm on my game, I respond, that's true. Some of the faithful do gravitate toward fluffy-headed optimism, but then I point out that rose-colored glasses are hard to come by when you actually pay attention to the tradition. <laughs> Almost without exception, the good book recounts the experiences of individuals and communities whose faith was shaped by turmoil. Did Abraham and Sarah know suffering? Sure they did. Did Ruth and Naomi know suffering? Oh yeah. Did Job know suffering? Look at your bulletin cover. Job is history's poster child for suffering. Did Isaiah describe the Messiah as the suffering servant? Most certainly. Did Jesus know suffering? Do I even need to ask that? It's difficult to fathom how anyone could actually read scripture and conclude that faith is a rabbit's foot, a get out of jail free card, a lucky charm that will ward off suffering. Listen again to how the Apostle Paul describes his mission trip to Asia. We were so utterly, unbearably crushed that we despaired of life itself. Paul's words bring us to mile marker number one in today's let's call it a three-mile sermon. The signpost at marker number one reads like this. The Christian faith is born of suffering, is aware of suffering, is always ready to talk about suffering. The next stage of our journey builds on this painfully honest but solid foundation. Our faith starts with realism, and then it constructs something hopeful, something deeply and profoundly hopeful atop this foundation. There's consolation to be found, we say, our sacred texts say, in God. Let's take a moment to consider the word consolation. If you're like me, consolation may immediately get you picturing the consolation prize, the award that goes to the team that did not win. And in a way, that's accurate to the word's roots. Those in need of consolation are not winners, not in any conventional sense of the term. Returning to the theme that we explored in mile number one, those who want a religion focused on winning need to remember that the path Jesus took led to Golgotha and putting Good Friday at the heart of our faith. We have all embraced a religion that focuses on consolation. 
To console is to offer encouragement, comfort, and solace to those who are suffering. Most psychologists agree that consolation depends on a crucial human characteristic, and that characteristic is empathy. To offer consolation, you've got to feel for those who are suffering. And, and this is where, I'm, I'm sorry to say, practice makes perfect, where virtue comes at a steep price. Those who have suffered are often the most empathetic souls. They excel at offering consolation. You can see this reflected in today's text. Where does the apostle see abundant consolation? In Christ. Why there? Well, says Paul, for just as the sufferings of Christ are abundant for us, so also our consolation is abundant through Christ. You can see the logical thread that Paul is teasing out here. Christ has suffered. In fact, he's suffered mightily. And because Christ has known great suffering, Christ has great empathy, abundant consolation for those who suffer. This logical framework gets us to mile marker number two. The testimony of our faith is this. The one who suffered much has profound empathy for those who also suffer. Christ walked the path through the, the valley of the shadow of death. And, and as such, Christ's promise of solidarity with those who suffer has credibility has authority. In this lies hope. This truth allows us to say, to, to pray with the author of the 23rd Psalm, thou art with me. At the heart of our faith, we will always find this testimony. The suffering servant walks at our side through the storms of life, offering us consolation, abundant consolation, consolation to all those who are not winners. With this perspective in mind, let us start down mile number three. The solidarity of the suffering servant gives us hope. The consolation of God with us, alongside us, thou art with me, lifts our spirit, and it also places a challenge before us. You can hear the challenge clearly in today's text. Listen to Paul address God. Blessed be the God of all consolation who consoles us in all all our affliction so that we may be able to console those who are in any affliction with the consolation with which we ourselves are consoled by God. God extends consolation to us, therefore, says Paul, we ought to extend consolation to others. It makes sense. Simple, pass this blessing around the table, 
sense. And yet Paul's admonition may have set the bar too high for humankind. How so? Well, the kink in the apostles' plan goes like this. We have decided that there are those in this world who do not deserve our consolation, our empathy. The violent conflict raging between Israel and Hamas has made this abundantly clear. It's resulted in scores of emotional debates between friends. It's divided college campuses. Threats against synagogues and mosques in this country have spiked. A six-year-old Palestinian-American boy was fatally stabbed this past week in Chicago. And then last night, the president of a synagogue in Detroit was stabbed to death. This morning, I'm not going to try to attempt to parse all the ethical nuances of this terrible conflict. Instead, I simply want to draw your attention to one of the tragic dynamics at play. Ask yourself this. What happens when people sense that the world has no empathy for their suffering. I ask this on a spiritual level. What does a lack of empathy do to us, do to our souls? But I also ask this on a practical, psychosocial level. What does a lack of empathy do to our relationships? And here I think we know the answer. For two weeks, I've been reading scores of beautifully written editorials that express deep agony over this long and brutal conflict. Along the way, a, a core concern, a, a central question has been running through, I think, almost every one of these essays, and it goes like this. Do we, do I, do, do these people, does this situation not deserve your empathy, not warrant your compassion? You may have heard it phrased like this. No matter what you think about the long and painful history of this conflict and the violence that kicked off its most recent chapter, how can your heart not break for the citizens of Gaza? who are fleeing the shelling, who have buried friends and family in bloody blankets, whose children stare at the world with empty eyes. How can your heart not break for people who have almost no cards to play in a vast and complicated global political dispute in which so many treat them as expendable pawns? Or you may have heard it expressed like this. No matter how much concern you have for the plight of Palestinians, how can you not speak out, speak up, 
offer comfort to Jewish friends, to the Jewish people in the face of the atrocities visited on the villages of southern Israel by terrorists whose hatred knows no bounds, whose stated goals are the obliteration of a country and its people, and whose wanton acts of violence have raised the specter of the worst sort of anti-Semitism. Under the best of circumstances, questions like that are a prelude to a very difficult conversation. Uh, a conversation where misunderstandings and prejudice, fears and resentment, tears and anger swirl about each other in unsettling and uncomfortable ways. And yet, my friends, as tricky as those conversations are, my fear is that the current an inexcusably lazy approach our society takes to moral dialogue, if you can even call it dialogue, is making matters worse, so much worse. You know what I'm talking about? Far too often, contemporary ethical debates are conducted through short, furious messages posted to one's social media channel of choice, while those who root for the same team offer us a virtual backslash we do love our echo chambers. Confine yourself to 280 characters, vent your fury, opt for anger over nuance, flames over consolation, get a thumbs up and move on to the next issue, please. Our contemporary approach to fighting shaped by these platforms that we use to prosecute our arguments encourage ever more polarized stances ever more polarized politics and an ever more polarized world. Do I even need to reference all that's been going on in the House of Representatives this past week? And with that cheery thought, we arrive at mile marker number three. Our faith is begging us to consider a third way. Listen to what it asks of us. Will you, the good book urges, will you extend consolation to all who suffer? Can you have empathy for those with whom you disagree? Will you dare to try and fulfill the most difficult commandment ever uttered by our Lord? Love your enemy. Sometimes Jesus asks the impossible of us. And it makes us wonder, is the radical consolation that Scripture describes, abundant consolation in the face of human suffering, even feasible? Does that sort of thing ever happen? Ever. Last week, I addressed a conference in Montreat, North Carolina. It was a gathering about, of about 400 clergy from around the country. The title of the conference was Holy Shift. <laughs> you need to hear the F in that word, shift, otherwise I'll be in big trouble. Holy Shift. 
The stated purpose of the conference was to consider the many ways in which churches have changed post-pandemic. And one of the best lectures that I heard at the conference was given by Dr. Sung Chan Ra. Dr. Ra is a Korean American and the Robert Boyd Munger Professor of Evangelism at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California. Dr. Ra's topic was changing de demographics in Christianity, both in the world, but focused on North America. He's a fascinating, funny, compelling speaker. Dr. Ra's words also held a pretty clear challenge for mainline white folk. Basically, he encouraged us to be more open to letting versions of Christianity that have been shaped by non-white communities, immigrant communities, to flavor our way of being church. And, and he explained this challenge with a story, a metaphor. When you white folk invite Korean Christians into your churches, observed Dr. Ra, you try to be good hosts. You go out and buy a bottle of kimchi and you put it on your kitchen counter, and you offer us some to have with lunch. But as soon as your Korean friends walk out the door, you take that bottle of kimchi, you screw the top back on hard, you put it in a Ziploc baggie, then you wrap the baggie with cellophane, then you put that sealed package in a garbage bag, and you close the bag with about 10 twist ties before taking it out to the dumpster. And that feels like hospitality to you. <laughs> True hospitality, Dr. Ra continued, would be to keep that jar of kimchi in your refrigerator all the time and to allow it to flavor the rest of the food there. Imagine that, your yogurt flavored with kimchi. It's a fantastic metaphor. It made us laugh. And it made us all a little uncomfortable. Dr. Ra finished speaking. We applauded vigorously. And then came the moment I want to tell you about. The good professor took questions. The first hand that went up was a middle-aged white woman. And she began in a sort of awkward way. I, I like Korean food, she said. I'm open to keeping kimchi in my fridge, but I worry about some of the other flavors your community might bring. She went on to explain. I am the mother of a child who identifies as queer. In principle, I don't have anything against other communities of faith flavoring my church, but in practice, some of the communities you're talking about question my child's right to exist, question whether my child is loved by God, question whether my child can be embraced as a faithful follower of Jesus. The auditorium grew eerily quiet. Suddenly, we were face to face with a debate that has turned North American Christianity inside out for decades. Here, here was a professor who had attended 
one of the most theologically conservative seminaries in the country, Gordon Conwell, an evangelical scholar who is an outspoken advocate for greater cultural sharing, facing a woman who was deeply fearful that the cultural sharing he was advocating would call into question the fierce love that she has for her child and the place that they both have in the church. It's a tense moment. And that's when it happened. That's when a doorway to awe opened. It opened between two very different people who share at least one thing in common. Both were intensely aware of the suffering that their communities, their people had endured. And in that moment, Dr. Ra looked at his questioner and softly said, I hear you. I hear the concern in your voice. And I want to say I'm sorry for every time a member of my community has ever questioned the love that God has for your child. As far as apologies go, it was pretty basic. But it was a sacred thing. Months from now, I will have forgotten everything that was said at the Holy Shift Conference, including the stuff that I said. But I will always remember Sung Chan Ra's compassion. I will remember the consolation he offered to that anxious mother. I will remember the inspiring quiet that came over the room. I will remember his empathy with a sense of wonder. My friends, to paraphrase the Apostle Paul, this suffering stuff is hard, sometimes unbearably hard. But isn't that all the more reason for the faithful to share consolation? abundant consolation with all who face deadly peril. Go from this place and as you go, embrace empathy, share consolation, have courage, hold fast to what is good, do not return evil for evil, Strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the suffering, honor all people, love and serve the Lord. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and given you a measure of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you would like to make a donation to support this audio ministry, please visit fapc.org give. Thank you and blessings to you on this day.